This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. In this episode of The Extraordinary Story, the Pharisees try to trip Jesus up by asking him about divorce and marriage. Jesus answers in words that have caused a lot of trouble ever since. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So we're going to look at divorce and marriage today. And I'll try to make the case that what Jesus did here was actually a very freeing thing. I'll even give the surprising words of a priest at my daughter's wedding, so stick around for that. Plus, the one thing that every couple must do. But let's start out by looking at the Gospel of Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 19. We'll read the Gospel and put it in some context. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one. What, therefore, God has joined together, let no man put asunder. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity and marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, It is not expedient to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can receive this precept, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. He who is able to receive this, let him receive it. I love the way this gospel begins. Large crowds followed him, and he healed the people. That's a great introduction to Jesus' words on marriage and divorce, because his words are meant for the masses as words of healing. In fact, they're meant for the masses in two senses. First, because Jesus' strong words about marriage are not for the few, but for the many. Lifelong marriage isn't the exception that the hyper-religious should follow. Lifelong marriage is for everyone. But it's also for everyone, because what he says about marriage applies to the people of God as a whole, in its marriage-like relationship with God. We have been talking about heaven and hell, and whether God can be reconciled with man. We saw that hell is the inability to be friends with God, and heaven is the ability to do so. And we saw that Jesus is like the prodigal son's father, running out to reconcile himself with the son. Well, here comes Jesus talking about marriage, and, as it turns out, hell on earth is the inability to be friends with your spouse, and a heavenly blissful union is the ability to do so. 
Actually, as we will see, it's more like this. Love entails sacrifice, and sacrifice means suffering, but happiness follows sacrifice as well. Life with God works the same way. If we live our lives disjointed from friendship with God, our hell starts now. And if we live our lives in harmony with God, our heaven starts now. People make the mistake of thinking of our relationship with God as legalistic. He will let us into heaven if we meet the following three conditions, or however many it is. No, what we need to be is his friend, and real friendship naturally will end up with us fulfilling those conditions. It's the same with marriage. The Pharisees' question to Jesus is all about whether or not married couples can be divorced. Pharisees are legalists, and they want to treat marriage as a legalism from which they might find a legal out. In the Gospels, the Pharisees approach Jesus and ask, Is it lawful for a husband to divorce his wife? They were testing him, the Gospel says. That's a problem right there. They aren't coming to Jesus seeking understanding, but trying to play gotcha and trip him up. Jesus doesn't give in to them. Instead, he tells them about the beauty of marriage. By doing that, Jesus hands marriage back to the crowds, and his words are healing. His teaching on marriage sparked a revolution of love that came to the rescue of women in the ancient world who were treated as property. In fact, it caused men to have to suffer for women and not only the other way around, and not just leave all the sacrifice and suffering to the women. What Jesus says here rescues couples to this day who would otherwise treat their marriage as a contract, meaning next to nothing. I know we usually don't see it that way. We usually start out our discussion of Jesus on divorce, trying to explain why it's okay that he said no to divorce. But man, the no divorce rule has saved people from poverty, mostly women and children. It has saved people from dissolute lives, mostly men. And it has led to generations of children who were raised in stable homes and went on to lead better-adjusted lives. Divorce doesn't free us from unhappiness. It puts us back into a situation of doubt and darkness. And the refusal to divorce frees us to be happy. The Pharisees make the same mistake many of us make. They focus on the rules of marriage, while Jesus focuses on the reality of marriage. And the reality of marriage is that we were made in God's image. And that's the image of love, not legalism. The devil from the beginning saw God as a tyrant, not a lover, but he is a lover. Again, this is the case for us collectively and each of us individually. The Old Testament compares God's relationship with his people as a bridegroom espousing a bride. And in fact, the New Testament and Jesus in the gospel repeatedly compares God's union with man in Jesus Christ with the marital union. Brant Petrie has a whole book on it. St. Paul says marriage is a great mystery and is like Christ and the church. As I mentioned in the Wedding Feast at Cana episode and others, Jesus calls John the Baptist the friend of the bridegroom, making himself the bridegroom. He explains why his disciples don't fast by saying, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So, according to Jesus, God is espousing his people in him. So, he wants to make sure we understand how significant it is to espouse somebody. And that is where our own marriages come in. Jesus describes here how people made in the image of God behave when they get married. He does so by referencing the part of Genesis 
that is all about just how we are made in God's image. Jesus refers to two different passages in Genesis here, two different accounts of the creation. First, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? Well, that's a reference to the first creation story in Genesis, where God suggestively says, quote, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the seas, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Then Jesus quotes the second creation story, where God plants a garden, forms man out of the earth, and forms Eve from his rib. Jesus says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. So, this is fascinating. This is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God made man, describing one significant dimension of what it means for us to be made in God's image. And the thing he points to is sexuality. To the Pharisees, spouses are two legal parties. To Jesus, they are two life partners. The Pharisees want to see how the marriage contract unites two households in law. Jesus praises the marital act for uniting two persons in their bodies. Bishop Barron points out how far from a Puritan Jesus is. When he is talking about how two become one flesh, he is clearly talking about the marital act. And I'll quote something PG-13 here, a little warning from Proverbs. But if you have any doubt that this is the attitude of God towards sex, just read the PG-13 passage in Proverbs 5, 18-20. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated by her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated by another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? St. John Chrysostom, who was born in 347, shows that Christians saw this from the very beginning. He wrote, quote, Scripture does not say they shall become one flesh, but they shall be joined together into one flesh, namely the child. But suppose there is no child. Do they then remain two and not one? No. Their intercourse affects the joining of their bodies, and they are made one, just as when perfume is mixed with ointment. But why are you blushing? Leave that to the heretics and pagans with their impure and immodest customs. For this reason, I want marriage to be thoroughly purified, to bring it back again to its proper nobility. You should not be ashamed of these things. If you are ashamed, then you condemn God who made marriage. Wow, so that shows the true Christian attitude towards sex. But don't lose sight of the first point St. John Chrysostom makes here. Christian sexuality is all about making babies, not just about making love. So this command from Jesus to unite in one flesh does two things. First, just as the love of the first and second person of the Trinity brings about a third, just as the love between God the Father and God the Son is another person, the Holy Spirit, so the love between a wife and a husband is so real 
it sometimes becomes a distinct person, the baby. At the same time, the union of spouses creates a new unity of persons even when it doesn't produce a child, a union that is still holy, still godlike. But by making them male and female, God built them for physical union from the start. God's creation of Adam and Eve is not just his creation of humanity, it's his creation of a human way of sexual intimacy, a way of sexual intimacy that is different from the way of animals and specifically built for humanity. And that way is the way of love and self-giving. It's important to note here that this self-giving unity happens between people whose union is open to life. So marriage is for a man and a woman who are open to children. So Jesus says, quotes, So they are no longer two, but one. But then he adds those words that sent shockwaves back then and still do today. He says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. This sets off the Pharisees. Men had great control over their wives back then, and the Pharisees were having internal fights among themselves about when divorce was allowed and when it wasn't. Some held out for it to be only on rare, grave occasions, but others were making a more American-style argument, arguing for divorce for various reasons, serious or not so serious. So the Pharisees said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? He said to them, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity, and marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So tellingly, in Matthew, the Pharisees say Moses commanded divorce. Jesus says he allowed it, and only because of their hardness of heart. But he added, except in the case of unchastity. And those words have fueled now hundreds of years of debate. They didn't early on. Clearly, the apostles' reaction to this, which is so incredulous, means that they did not see that Jesus was keeping the status quo, where, in cases of adultery, divorce was permissible. So what does unchastity mean here? Well, in fact, it's a kind of a vague word that's used to translate what's to us kind of an uncertain concept. The real word here is porneia in Greek, and it has an expansive meaning from what we can tell. But of course, it's vitally important to know what it means. The fathers of the church, the early Christian leaders, tended to see here that what Jesus was saying is that a spouse could escape from a difficult situation. It allowed for divorce in such situations, but not remarriage. After all, the apostles in the gospel really were astonished at this, and they wouldn't be astonished at a restatement of the status quo. Another understanding is that porneia refers to people who were married to a relative in error or too close of a relation in error or by bad decision. Whatever it means, it shocked the apostles, it shocked us, and it shocked the Pharisees too. If the Pharisees are trying to see if Jesus will contradict Moses, well, he does, just like they feared. But he does it almost casually in this authoritative way. And while they talk about the law and its loopholes, Jesus goes on to speak of love and its gifts. Notice how Jesus' words forbidding divorce flow very naturally from his words about human love and sexuality. Becoming flesh bonds two people. We know this from endocrinology and neuroscience. 
that it truly does this bodily. The body has a chemical reaction that associates a sexual partner with the other in their minds, in their hearts, in their bodies. It creates an emotional connection that causes stress and anxiety when it's broken, which is one of the several reasons pornography addicts experience such anxiety and the inability to connect with other people. So physically and spiritually, inside and out, our two-in-one marital union is real, like the three-in-one unity of the Trinity. And if it's real, then it has to be unbreakable too. Marriage is a promise you can't take back. It's a commitment your body and mind want to hold you to. And it's a commitment God himself will hold you to. That's easier said than done. The Trinity is the union of three perfect divine persons. Our unity is the unity of two sinners. For us sinners to love like God with real self-giving will always involve sacrifice and forgiveness. And forgiving doesn't just mean shrugging off the faux pas of your beloved. It means a life change that has to embrace some very, very difficult things. I like what Erasmo Leva Maricakis, who is now Father Simeon, says about this. He says, quote, Let us make no mistake about it. We, would-be disciples of Jesus, are in fact the Pharisees Jesus is addressing here. For all of us, to various degrees, are always in a state of self-righteous rebellion against God's deepest purpose, which is always the unifying work of forgiveness and love, end quote. He goes on to add that marriage is paschal. Marriage is a way of the cross, a way of sacrifice, and as we shall see, a way of loving despite suffering, forgiving offenses, learning humility, and service. St. Paul puts it this way famously in Ephesians, quote, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean here in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. St. Paul says a lot there. He says men are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Well, the way Christ loved the church was to die for her, knowing full well he was dying for sinners who were building an institution filled with corruption and human wickedness and disappointment. So let's get real here by going back to St. John Chrysostom from the 300s to see how an early church leader interpreted this passage. He told husbands, quote, Even if you must undergo countless struggles on her behalf and have all kinds of things to endure and suffer, you must not refuse. Even if you suffer all this, you have still not done as much as Christ for the church. Even if you see her looking down on you, nagging and despising you, you will be able to win her over with your great love and affection for her. Even if it becomes necessary for you to give your life for her, yes, and even to endure and undergo suffering of any kind, do not refuse. End quote. So that's what Christian husbands are supposed to be like. I'm not stressing Christian wives as much because there seems to be more of a crisis of husbands failing their families right now. But the women, too, have their cross to carry. The husband and wife are supposed to submit to each other, and that entails real sacrifice on both sides, often the woman's side. I haven't been stressing it, but I will now. At Mark's midpoint, we got Jesus' first prediction of the Passion. But throughout the Gospel passages we've been reading and following, 
and will for the rest of this season of the extraordinary story, Jesus has kept announcing that he plans to go to Jerusalem to die. This is directly relevant to what he says about marriage and the rest of the topics we've been addressing. In chapter 17, he says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. End quote. In chapter 20, he says, quote, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve aside, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles, to be mocked, and scourged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. End quote. So, definitely read all of these readings as part of his preparation explicitly for the Passion. His teaching on marriage is certainly no exception. To love another person for a lifetime means being hurt for a lifetime and moving past the hurt to love anyway. It means choosing the cross. Father Hughes Sendemi from Ghana was the priest who celebrated my daughter's wedding. He put it very bluntly, and people laughed a little when he said, quote, Marriage is a ministry of offense. But they stopped laughing when he described what he meant. Quote, God gives us marriage so that we can offend each other and make each other humble and forgiving. That's something that took me 30 years to learn, but it is absolutely true. The flaws and faults of marriage are not an unfortunate occasional obstacle to the real point of marriage, which is peace, love, and harmony. They are the point of marriage. They are the source of peace, love, and harmony. Our flaws and faults destroy each other's egotism and force us to learn how to live in peace, love, and harmony, the way Jesus did by sacrificing for imperfect people who don't necessarily get better. Father Hughes continued with words that made a bunch of us tear up. He said, If you cannot forgive, then do not marry. When you hear people celebrating 30, 40, 50 years of togetherness, they are celebrating forgiveness. End quote. He went on to say, quote, There will be disagreements, arguments, misunderstandings, hurt feelings, and perhaps harsh words. These differences can either spoil or destroy your love or strengthen and deepen it. If you quickly reconcile, swiftly heal wounds, your love will soar to a new level and your joy increase. End quote. Research studies that follow married couples for decades find that most people experience periods of dissatisfaction, even great dissatisfaction with their spouses. Those who stay married, however, usually begin reporting satisfaction again. But those who divorce will often find themselves, soon enough, dissatisfied with someone new. Any married person knows this is true, with or without research. We who are committed in Catholic marriages can often think back and identify a time, maybe more than one time, when we would have called it quits if we could, but didn't. And when we do think of it, we usually think, thank God I couldn't and didn't get divorced, because things are going so great now. That's what God puts in place here with his, what God has joined, let no man put asunder. It's the story of every marriage, well, just about every marriage, in American culture anyway today. It's a story of intense joys followed quickly by intense sorrows. You go into marriage because you want euphoria, and you head out of marriage because you found rage instead. 
You expected deep comfort from marriage and got monumental irritation. Marriage often drives you to the end of your limit and you will desperately want to quit. The early arguments of marriage are brutal, angry conflagrations where it seems like everything, joy, peace, happiness, your whole future is at stake every time. Later arguments feel like exercises in futility where you wonder, why are we even bothering? But if you hang on and make one key decision, everything changes. Let me preface this by saying, if you are suffering real harm, physical or verbal abuse, then the key decision that you have to make is to leave right away for your safety or your children's and call the cops if possible too. But if what you are suffering in your marriage is the very painful, very real difficulties and disappointment every marriage faces, which can be very significant, then you stay in and you make this decision, the decision to forgive. You decide that you're going to keep at it, refuse to be defeated, and keep loving. Keep putting one foot in front of the other, carrying your cross, no matter what. In other words, you make the decision to love your spouse like Jesus loves you. If you do that, you find something amazing. The irritations will remain, but they'll become background noise, and joy will take over the foreground. The joy that is only possible to those who have dedicated their lives to someone else and fought selfishness away with every ounce of their being. At the beginning of your marriage, you give your life away to a dream of what it can become. Then you go through the crucible and you have to learn to give even more than you ever expected, not to the dream of a perfect life, but to the reality of a real life with its real problems. You saw a bright glowing vision of your beloved and you promised to lasso the moon for your future spouse. Now the glow is gone and your spouse is a flesh and blood human being with blemishes and flaws, who is selfish and unkind and unhappy God says, no one needs you to lasso the moon, but your spouse needs you to come home from a hard day's work and then work more. Your spouse needs you to be kind when they are not being kind. Your spouse needs you to turn off what you've been waiting a week to watch and watch what they want instead. Your spouse needs you to do tedious things that seem pointless to you. All that's a lot harder than lassoing the moon. In short, your spouse needs you to die to yourself And the fact that you are loving your spouse with God and for God and in God allows you to do this. The Catechism says, quote, It can seem difficult, even impossible, to bind oneself for life to another human being, end quote. But then the Catechism says, quote, Christ dwells with the married couple, gives them the strength to take up their crosses and so follow him to rise again after they have fallen, to forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, and to love one another with supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. That is why marriage is compared to Jesus' relationship with the church. The pain we feel in becoming one is like the pain Jesus felt becoming one with us. He had to push through our betrayal of him, even our crucifixion of him, to stay united to us. And the love we gain in marriage makes us better Christians, and it heals. It heals us of our selfishness, teaches us to love. Only two people saw in your spouse what you saw. Jesus saw in your spouse someone worth suffering for, someone worth going through the ringer for, someone worth dying for. The other person who saw that is you. And if you hold on and you look back and celebrate 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60 years of forgiveness, 
There's nothing more satisfying than that. There's nothing more satisfying than looking back over the course of your life and seeing that you made it through with your arm around your wife, your children and grandchildren at your feet. And it's that joy Jesus is talking about to his apostles at the very end of this gospel reading. Because you'll remember, the disciples said, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is not expedient to marry, end quote. They see very clearly that there is no divorce option in Jesus's explanation. And they figure that's too hard. Why would someone do that? Jesus answers with his words about celibacy. He says some people skip sex their whole life for various reasons, but that the new reason they would do it is for the sake of the kingdom. And that's the case today, too. There are many Catholics who are barred from acting on their sexual desires by the teachings of Christ and the Church. Single people, widows, those who have taken religious vows, same-sex attracted people, priests, and more. Jesus has just said that sex is a high good, holy, and makes us like God. But it is not the highest good. Now he's telling us what is the highest good. The highest good is the kingdom of heaven, the love of God, a return to that state where we're walking with God. Marriage is good too, and the right state of life for most Christians. But it's not the highest good. Those who skip it for the sake of the kingdom of God gain a lot of practical benefits, They don't go through the crucible of matching their lives to another person's. They have free time and free resources to do more for God. But those who don't marry aren't giving up something bad. They're giving up something good. For whether you carry the cross of marriage or the cross of celibacy, your life and your love finds its ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story.